following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. You know the story all so well. And there's really two things that come out of the story that are kind of the keys or main points. Uh, first point is that, uh, that Jesus is born in... Help me out, kids. Where is Jesus born? In what city? Bethlehem. Very important, and we'll see why as we look at this. Uh, second thing is that when he was born, he is laid in a, a manger, right? Um, and those are really the two main points of the story. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He is laid in a manger. And in fact, this, this account, it's easy to, to glance over this because we know it so well and read it so often, but uh, it's, it's intended to leave us with an impression of, of the baby Jesus born in a barn in a stable laying in this manger, right? Um, well, we, we know those points well. Uh, we know the story maybe too well. Um, and what I want to think about this morning, just briefly, is, you know, what does this really tell us about God? What does this tell us about the heart and character and nature of God, that, that this is the way Jesus would be born? Um, there, there are numerous prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And uh, there are at least ten major prophecies that he fulfilled just in his birth, right? Uh, and we won't go through all of those, but we know they're there. What's interesting is that Two of those prophecies seem to conflict, right? T- seem to be opposing. Uh, the first one of those prophecies is, is found in Micah 5.2, which describes where Jesus will be born. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephraim, are only a small town among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from distant past. So the prophecy was clear where Jesus was to be born, that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. At the same time, another prophecy says that the Messiah will come from Galilee. Uh, this one comes out of Isaiah 9, 1-7, through 7, also a very familiar Christmas passage. Uh, it says, Nevertheless, at that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, for a child is born to us, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. Right? So, in Scripture and in the prophecy about Jesus, you've got these two prophecies that Jesus will come from Galilee, which is in the north, way north of, in the northern extreme of Israel. Uh, other prophecies say he would be born in Bethlehem, right? Of course, looking back on it, we go, well, that's easy, not a problem, right? Um, but for those living in Jesus' day, these, these prophecies would have been conflicting. In fact, so much so that many people in Jesus' day saw uh, the Messiah and the promised King of Israel as two separate people. Right? And they didn't always understand that this would be fulfilled in one person. Um, so we know that, and we know, uh, you know, we know that Jesus fulfilled both of those prophecies, that he was born in Bethlehem, and indeed he did 
live and grow up in Galilee and Nazareth, right? Um, the, the question, though, really is, as we know, the, the story that leads up to this, you've got uh, Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth, right? And God appears, as the kids showed, God appears in an angel to both Mary and to Joseph, and he... Uh, you know, explains to Mary she's going to have a baby, and, uh, and, and so they're living in Nazareth, right? Nine months go by, Mary is quite pregnant, uh, Joseph takes her as his wife, although in the Luke account it still calls her fiancé because they still were living not as husband and wife, but he had married her, uh, and she's now nine months pregnant, right? Now, here, here's the deal. How do you get a nine-month full-term pregnant lady to walk 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? This is no small task. And for those of you ladies who have been pregnant, you can relate with this. You know, we, all, we always want to put Mary on a, on a donkey because we just can't humanly conceive that she would walk this. I mean, at least she had a donkey. The scripture doesn't say that, okay? There's nowhere in the Bible that it says she rode a donkey. And most likely, given the way things worked back then, she walked, and it was about 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? So picture this. Nine-month lady, nine months pregnant, right? Uh, You've got to get her from Nazareth, where she lives, to Bethlehem to have this baby. Um, how are you going to do that? Well, uh, we want to look at that, and, and, and uh, Luke explains it for us, right? He tells us how this happened. And he says in the first few verses, At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the empire. Right? We know that. Um, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their ancestral towns, their hometowns, to register for the census. Um, we, we know all this. You know, it's, it is, it's a familiar story. And... Uh, it's easy for us sometimes to picture Israel or Judea, as it was known in Jesus' day, as this little quaint, you know, nativity village that, that we put on our postcards. It lived in some kind of bubble or isolation from the rest of the world and world history. But Luke is very careful to tie what's happening here in with uh, the events of world history in that day. And he ties it and marks it to this guy, uh, Caesar Augustus, right? Uh, have you kids? Have you kids ever heard of Caesar Augustus? Okay, one. Okay. Well, here's the deal. I'm going to give you guys a short history lesson on Roman history. Now, you may think this is not that exciting now, but trust me, in tenth grade, you're going to have an exam on this. Okay. <laughs> so take notes, and you're going to ace this exam, and you're going to go. Pastor Tim told me this when I was in fourth grade. Thank you, Pastor Tim. All right. Because uh, it's really important, and, and, and Luke sets it in the context of this history for a reason. And I want to take a little bit of time to review some of our history uh, to, to really paint a backdrop of what's happening in these verses, right? So here, hang on to your seats because we're going we're to blow through Roman history really fast. And the story begins with Julius Caesar, uh, the first actual emperor of the Roman Empire. There were, there were leaders before that, but he was really the first Roman emperor who had been given the title of divine emperor, uh, as in God, right? Uh, Julius Caesar was the first. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny that a guy has the name of Julie, right? 
and it's you know kind of embarrassing for him. But he's called that because he was born in the month of July, which is where Julius comes from, right? So remember that it's on the exam. I'm telling you, don't don't forget that. Okay. So Julius Caesar, and he comes into power through a civil war in 49 BC. So about 50 years, 45 years before Jesus is born. Uh, he kills off all of his enemies, goes to war. He doesn't actually kill them all, but he gains power through civil war and uh, uh, sets himself up as emperor of the Roman Empire. And the first, one of the first things he does, he doesn't have children of his own, so he names an heir. I think he has a sense that this, you know, this may not end well. And so first thing he does is he names an heir to the throne, and he names his nephew. He has two nephews. One is Mark Antony. And the other, in, other is Octavian, or Octavius, depends on how you want to pronounce it. Octavian. Well, Octavian is, becomes Caesar Augustus. Right? So the, the Caesar, that's, uh, the emperor in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, is Octavian, Julius' nephew. Well, uh, for whatever reason, Julius likes Octavian better than Mark Antony. They both were important, powerful generals in the Roman armies. Both very significant, influential people, but Julius names Octavian as his heir. Um, Julius, during his, his time uh, through the Civil War, and, and his time had made many enemies, and while he had won power through Civil War, he, wanted, he envisioned a different kind of Rome. And up until that time, when you, when you gained power, you just killed all, all of your enemies. But he really was a very different kind of person. He wanted to see a peaceful Rome that was united. So he chose, rather than killing off all those who had opposed him, to give them clemency and, and to forgive them. Right? Uh, probably the worst mistake he ever actually made because a number of years later, those enemies who were still living, who still hated him, uh, invited him to a, a, a discussion, uh, a prayer meeting, not really a prayer meeting, but a discussion, uh, and led by Brutus, 60 senators assembled and assassinated Julius and stab, stabbed him to death. On, uh, on what date? You may know history buffs. March 15th, 44 B.C., okay? Uh, well, his death instigated yet another civil war between uh, the followers of Julius on one side and the followers of Brutus on, on the other. Uh, in order to get the upper hand, uh, the two nephews of Julius, Octavian and Mark Antony, uh, made an alliance, and they joined forces along with another strategic general to fight against Brutus. Um, and they went to battle and chased them all over the Roman Empire. Uh, Brutus knew he was outmanned and outgunned, so he ne- also needed allies. So Brutus went to the Parthians. You kids know who the Parthians are? Anybody know? I had no idea. I had to look it up. Praise God for Wikipedia. Um, the Parthians actually were the Iranians. Okay, the kingdom of Parthia was basically modern-day Iran. Well, uh, Mark Antony uh, led his army to Turkey, where he engaged Brutus and the Parthians. Right? Uh, isn't this fascinating? Don't you love history? Well, it gets better. Because uh, Mark Antony realizes that he cannot defeat Brutus by himself. He also needs more help. Uh, Octavian is off fighting wars in other parts of the empire. So Mark Antony sends a letter to the queen of Egypt, whose name was, anybody know? Cleopatra, right. Cleopatra comes to Turkey where uh, 
Mark Antony is there with his, his army, and uh, they form an alliance. And Cleopatra agrees to send troops and supplies and resources to fight with Mark Antony against the Parthians. Meanwhile, they just kind of hit it off and became really chummy buddies. In fact, they fell in love, and so much so that Mark Antony actually leaves the battle, leaves the war, and sails back to Alexandria, Egypt with Cleopatra, where he hangs out with her for a year while, his, while their armies are fighting it out. Having a, he's having a good time. Uh, through that, uh, Cleopatra becomes pregnant and has two uh, twin boys. Uh, eventually, Mark Antony, for whatever reason, uh, heads back to the battlefield about a year later. Now, you may be asking, okay, well, that's all interesting, but what has this got to do with Israel, right? Well, in the midst of all of this skirmish, Israel is very much caught in the crossfire. None of this conflict had really anything at all to do with them. But if you, if, and I, sorry, I don't have a map, but if you can picture Israel's in the middle. To the north of Israel is Turkey and Syria, where Mark Antony was waging battle. The Parthians were from Iran, which was south and east of Israel. And Egypt, Egypt was, of course, farther south uh, of Israel. So right in the middle of it is Judea. And this battle is waging, and they really are literally caught in the crossfire between these warring nations. Um, during uh, the time that, that uh, Brutus was still in power, um, when he made an alliance with the Parthians, he promised them Judea, right? So eventually, Mark Antony, after he goes back to his little fling with Cleopatra, uh, gets back to business, goes to war, uh, finally beats the Parthians. But the Parthians are so outraged that they invade Judea because it was promised to them. They invade Judea and take over. Uh, as part of that, they take out the Roman king who was appointed governor or ruler over Judea, and they put in their own king and invade and take over Judea. And this happened about 40 uh, B.C., so not long uh, before Jesus' birth. Um, so now uh, they, they finally defeat, defeat Brutus. They, they um, crush his army. But now Mark Antony has another problem. Uh, the Parthians have stolen part of Rome. And so Mark Antony is not, not about to let them get away with that. So now he goes to battle against the Parthians, right? Uh, and he is, uh, with Cleopatra's and the help of, of Egypt, he is he's eventually able to win. But during this process, he um, uh, he tries to get help from, our, from, from his cousin, Octavian. But Octavian refuses to send help because Octavian wants to be sole emperor of Rome. Uh, during this time when they had defeated Brutus, the empire was divided into three sections, one to each of the key generals, Lepidus, Octavian, and Mark Antony. Octavian controlled Rome. Uh, Mark Antony controls uh, Turkey, Judea, Syria, that region. Um, well, th- things probably would have gone on as it was, and they probably would have held that balance of power, except Mark Antony was actually kind of an idiot. Okay, In addition to falling in love with Cleopatra, which was his first kind of major mistake. Um, second thing he does that just makes all of Rome really, really angry, he travels to Alexandria with Cleopatra, and he, after defeating the Parthians and re- 
reestablishing their presence in Judea, uh, which during that time he took the Parthian king out and, this, and, and appointed King Herod. Okay, so King Herod the Great was the King Herod the Great alive during the time of Jesus. So when the wise men go visit Herod, it's this Herod, right, who's the friend of Rome. Uh, Mark Antony goes to uh, Alexandria, and he declares himself, well, he actually doesn't declare himself, he declares his son emperor of Rome because his son actually had a more direct line to Julius than Octavian. So he names his son emperor of Rome and um, tries to basically take over the Roman Empire on his own. Well, the Romans didn't like that, especially Octavian didn't like that. Uh, The story ends with uh, Octavian taking his navy, encountering the Egyptian navy in Greece somewhere. The the Romans obliterate the Egyptians. Uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra get on a ship and flee back to um, Egypt. Octavian chases them down. And uh, not long before he gets to the very edge of Alexandria, Mark Antony knows his days, his number's up. And he kills himself by falling on his own sword. Uh, shortly after that, Cleopatra also takes her own life. Um, the last queen and the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt. Well, that's all great, good history. You kids got that? Okay, I'm telling you, it's going to be on the test. So study those facts. Um, well, so, so that we know what it has to do with Israel. But, but what does it really have to do with Jesus? Right? Uh, and why does, why does Luke place Jesus' birth in the context of, of, of this setting, right? Luke is careful to say that it's during this time when Augustus was emperor, right? When Herod was king of Judea. Well, remember, remember the whole problem we're addressing here. The problem is how do you get a nine-month pregnant lady to walk 100 miles to have her baby? How do you do that? How do you pull that off? Well, this is how you do it, right? You move kings and kingdoms. You turn empires upside down to make this happen. And, you, uh, and, and let me just highlight a couple things to show how God sovereignly moved in history to make this happen. There's three things that, that could have changed history and would have made the census ineffective, right? Or uh, not occur. First one, if Brutus had won and not Mark Antony, the Parthians would still control Judea and there probably would not have been a census. There certainly would not have been a Roman census, right? So way back during that civil war, what is at stake is the census, right? In in God's mission, God's plan in the world. Um, Second thing, if, uh, so so Mark Antony did did win and he did uh, defeat the Parthians, um, second problem, though, if the Roman Empire had continued divided in three sections, so in other words, if Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus had been the ruling generals, there would not have been a census, right? because a census would have for sure incited a civil war between the three, uh, the three generals. Right? So it was significant that Octavian win. Thirdly, uh, even with uh, Octavian winning, uniting the Roman Empire, if someone other than Herod the Great would have been appointed king in Judea, there would have been a census, but it would have been different um, in our story. Uh, and oftentimes we think that Herod decreed 
that uh, everyone returned to their hometown to register, right? That's what we, we think. The actual fact is the Romans didn't do a census that way, right? And, and Luke's very clear to put that in here, that, that they returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. But, in fact, uh, historians uh, oftentimes will accuse Luke of being uh, inaccurate to history because the Romans never did a census this way, right? Uh, if you were to register for a census any any other region in Rome, you did it at home, right? You just you didn't travel 100 miles away. You did it at home, right? You didn't have to go somewhere. Why was it done that way in Israel? Well, uh, the Jews hated the census because the census was all about paying taxes. And who wants to pay taxes, right? Like all good citizens, we love the roads, we love the hospitals, we just don't want to pay for it, right? Well, that was, that was the Jews. And they hated that it was to Rome. Well, King Herod, being half Jewish, uh, half Gentile, was very favorable uh, both to Rome but also to the Jews. And he was very careful to be diplomatic. And uh, when it came word time for there to be a census, Herod, in his genius, followed an, a Jewish tradition. And if you remember, in, in the Old Testament, they had the year of Jubilee, right? What was the year of Jubilee? Well, the year of Jubilee meant you returned home and you reclaimed the land that belonged in your family. Whether you sold it, whether you leased it, every 50 years you got back that land. And that was their version of taking a census. It was when you returned home and you resettled and reclaimed the property that belonged to you, that was part of your ancestral heritage. Well, Herod knew this, right? So he, uh, instead of making it a Roman census, he makes it a very Jewish tradition. And he combines this Jewish tradition along with paying taxes to make it easier for the Jews to swallow. Uh, his son in, in B.C. 6, six years, uh, I'm not sure, uh, A.D. 6, his son Archelaus also was commissioned to do a census. He didn't do it this way. He followed Roman custom uh, and it led to huge riots all over Judea, right? So if anybody other than Herod had been king, when the census came, Mary and Joseph would have registered in Nazareth, right? Um, so, so what's the point of all that? Well, the point is this. Um, God can do anything, right? God can move. God is sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. And he can move kings and kingdoms to get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, is that the only way he could have done it? Well, no. But that's how he did it, right? He was working 50 years in advance in wars and in generals and in armies to work out this plan so that when the day came for the census, it would happen this way. And the order would go out that Joseph and Mary had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem to have this baby, right? God is sovereign. Uh, he can do and will do anything to accomplish his mission in the world, even turn empires and kingdoms upside down, right? There's no obstacles for what he can do. Um, so that's how he got Mary there, right? Uh, and, and I'm convinced that other than actually just zapping her there, which would have been easier, actually, I don't know that, you know, what, what, else, what else would have moved Mary to make this journey, right? Um, but God did it. Well, why was it so important that, that 
Jesus be born in Bethlehem? Of course, we know on the one hand it was to fulfill prophecy, which is true. But is that the only reason? Um, did God just kind of throw that out one day and then think, ooh, drats, why did I say that? I wasn't thinking that through, you know. Or was there some meaning to it more than just it fulfilled prophecy? Well, of course, there's meaning in it. Uh, verse 3, it says, All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Okay. The reason it's, it's vitally important that Mary has this baby in Bethlehem is because Bethlehem is the city of David. Uh, as I said, the, the year of Jubilee, you go back to your ancestral home, you claim your family's property. For, for Joseph, that meant going to uh, the place of David's family. Uh, he, uh, throughout this account, Luke has made it very clear uh, that Jesus... The one who would be born would, 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 uh, would sit on David's throne, right? Uh, that he would be the king of kings. In fact, uh, the, the angel says it this way to Mary. He will be very great. Speaking of Jesus, the son of yours will be very great. He will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Why is it important that Jesus is born in Bethlehem? Because God wants to make it really clear in every possible way that Jesus is born a king. Uh, He is not uh, just a prophet. He is not just a teacher. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David who will claim that throne and who will rule on it, who will be king of kings and lord of lords, whose reign will never end. He is the eternal king who's fulfilling uh, the prophetic um, throne of David, right? Um, so Jesus is born a king, right? And, and God makes it very clear that you know, he is sovereign, he's in control of all things, and he is about to set up uh, his son as, as the king of kings, right? And so to do that, he sends him uh, back to the family roots, And Jesus must be born in Bethlehem, uh, where he can, even in his birth, in some sense, begin claiming his right to the throne of his ancestor David. Um, So, so let me summarize again. Two main points. If you don't, kids, if you don't remember anything, remember these two main points. First point of the story had to do with where Jesus was born. He was born where? Bethlehem. Right. So we talked about that. How. God got Mary there, why it's important for him to be there. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's king. God is sovereign. Second main point, though, is this, uh, that Jesus uh, is laid in a manger. And he's laid in a manger. What is that all about? Verse 5 says this, um, Joseph took Mary uh, with him, uh, who is now very pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Um, You know, 
I find this just incredible. Okay, and when you and, and the reason I painted all this backdrop is, you see God moving in history, appointing emperors and appointing kings and doing all this stuff to make sure uh, Mary ends up in Bethlehem, right? But then when they get there, there is no room in the inn, right? I mean, you've got a God who is sovereign who can turn empires upside down, but he can't book a room at the Holiday Inn, right? What is with that, right? What is with that? Um, and granted, you know, in that day there was no telephone, no internet, no agoda. It wasn't like Joseph could call ahead. But I mean, it's God we're dealing with here. You know, it's not Joseph's fault. God is God. Why could he not have arranged a decent place for Jesus to be born, right? He's been planning on this and working on this in history for 50 years, and he can't arrange a room for Mary. Uh, have you ever felt like God just really does not care about you? I wonder if Mary may have felt this way when she got to Bethlehem, right? Um, we don't know. It doesn't say. But you've got to pity this poor lady, right? She's having God's child. That's cool. Okay, that's a blessing. But she's having it out of wedlock, right? She has just, you know, God's just trashed her reputation in, in her village. Um, it's disrupted all of her plans. She's about to get married. You know, God's wrecked her marriage plans. And I'm sure Joseph is kind of bummed out by this whole deal as well. It's like, yeah, we're married, but not that married. Uh, uh, on top of that, the poor lady has to walk 100 miles being nine months pregnant, Right? And then she gets there, and there's no place to stay, right? It's like, God, you know, if you treat your friends this way, make me your enemy, right? Uh, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, God, um, help me out a little bit here, right? Help me out a bit. Um, you know, we serve God. We, we sacrifice for him. And honestly, a lot of people, you know, you, you live here. This is not your home. At Christmas time, you know, we feel especially the pain of living away from home, living away from family and loved ones that we would love to be celebrating uh, Christmas with, right? And we make sacrifices for him. And we, we have given up things to follow him and to do his will. And we do it because we believe in the mission of God in the world, just as Mary willingly submitted her life to what God was doing in her life. Right? We do that. But you ever wonder, like, God, you know, I'm doing all this. Can't you just make it a little easier, right? I've sacrificed so much. Can't you give me a little help? And I don't know if Mary felt that way. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she was a lot tougher than I would be. But you look at the story and you wonder, God... You're sovereign. It's a king, right? He is the king of kings, the king of ages. Why can't he have a room? Why can't you take care of him better? Why can't you make this just a little bit easier? But really, the punchline of this passage, of these seven verses, is this. I mean, it comes down to these words, and you cannot just pass by them. Uh, Mary laid him in a manger. A manger is a feed trough for, for cows and sheep and goats. Right? It's, it's cute in the nativity set, but it's not as cute in real life purpose. And I grew up on a dairy farm. 
they're not that clean, you know, and it's not that quaint and cozy. It's cold. It's 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 rough. It's it's earthy, right? It is smelly. Yeah. She laid him in a manger, right? She laid him in the hay. And that really is the punchline of the whole thing. It is, uh, it is the king of the ages, the eternal God of the universe, asleep on the hay, uh, in this feed trough. Um, and, and that is the incarnation of God, right? That, it, that is what it means for God to take on human flesh and come into the world to be God with us. Because he doesn't come at the top end. Right? He doesn't come in palaces and in luxury and in comfort. God chooses to come and be with people in the midst of their deepest, hardest struggles. Uh, God would fulfill his mission and he would do it with all sovereignty, uh, blowing apart kingdoms to do it. But he does not lift a finger to help out his servants, to make it easier for Jesus, because that's what the incarnation is. It is God entering life in the world in the middle of our hardships and struggles and difficulties. Um, It is God uh, not making it easy for Mary or for Jesus, because he wants Jesus in every way to identify with the struggles of real life with real people. Uh, and, and in her day, Mary, uh, you know, we, we talk about them being poor. There's actually no evidence that Mary and Joseph were that poor. It doesn't say they couldn't afford a room. <laughs> it says there just wasn't a room. Um, he got married, so Joseph was able to pay the dowry price, which certainly would have made him poorer than before. But he wasn't dirt poor, right? But he was common. He was average. He was ordinary. And he was the kind of guy who um, life was hard, right? And, and we're there. Most of us, when difficulties come along, we don't have all the resources to always get out of the difficulty. And you know what? God wants it that way, right? It's the way God works because it is his heart. In fact, I really believe that this is what love requires. You see, God could love his world from a distance one way, but never the same as if he entered the world and joined us in the middle of it. And Jesus came because God so loved the world that he gave his son. And he gave his son to to us where we live. That's the incarnation. It's not just that he took on human flesh, but he took on our human flesh. He took on our circumstances, our difficulties, our troubles. That's what love requires. Um, It's easy to think that God does this because he does not love Mary very much, right? (laughs) It doesn't seem like it. But the reality is God does this exactly because of how much he loves Mary and Joseph and the world. That he chooses to come into our world right where we live. And he loves you and I the same way. A love that walks with us in the middle of our difficulties and our struggles and our hardships. 
God promises to be with us in all those difficulties and every one of those hard times. Uh, And not only that, but if this is the heart of God in his coming, if this is how God comes into the world to show his love and grace, uh, it probably has a lot to do with how he sends us as his agents into the world to take the good news of his love and grace to lost people, right? Um, God uh, wants you to struggle so that you too can identify and relate to hurting people around you, right? Um, God wants to bless us, and praise God in many ways he has. And and certainly, uh, you know, we don't struggle nearly as much as, as many people do, right? But but God doesn't call us to that. Ultimately, God calls us not to go up the economic scale, but to go down it, right? He calls us to go to places where there are the weakest and the poorest and the most oppressed, right? God doesn't call, and granted, rich people need Jesus too. I get that, you know. And it's not that we don't share the gospel with rich people. But God never called us to be a church of rich people, right? He called us to be a church who gives away our wealth to help those who are poor and in need, to go to where they live and share and join in their struggles. Uh, Now, uh, Jesus did it for real. I mean, Jesus did it 100%. I don't know that we always can. I don't know that God's calling you to go live in a slum. Maybe. But if you do, you really can't do it like the people who were born there, right? So I don't know that God's calling us to that always. But he is calling us to walk with those people, right? He is calling us to be Jesus to the poor and the outcast and the downtrodden and those who struggle. Um. And that's what it means when it says Jesus was laid in a manger, right? Uh, God didn't make a mistake, right? God didn't mess up and just forget this tiny little detail. Oh, I forgot to book a room. (laughs) You know, I took care of Caesar, Roman Empire, got that covered. Ah, what was I thinking? No, right? It is intentional. It was not an oversight. It was what God chose to be the means by which he came into the world to be with us. It's, it's going to be a, a good opportunity. This Christmas Eve on Tuesday, we are going to this community where we're going to prayer walk and, and pass out Christmas tracts. Uh, it's a poor place. It's not a slum. It's not the poorest, right? But it's pretty poor. The, the little rooms there rent for about 700 baht a month. <laughs> okay, so it's pretty poor, right? We're going to that place intentionally because we want to be Jesus there, right? We want to go and we want to walk along those people. We're starting a ministry there because it's a place where no churches are working right now. There's no Christians. There's no light in that community. Uh, I invite you to come. Right in the middle of this community, you know, there's the moat uh, around the old city. But there used to be a dirt, an outer dirt wall that ringed the whole city of Chiang Mai. And uh, that dirt wall goes right through the middle of this community. And in the middle of this dirt wall is a kind of a rampart like on the moat, very old. And we're going to go up on that rampart and we're going to sing and we're going to praise God and worship. And it is a spiritually dark place, right? And it's a poor place, but um, 
a chance for us to, uh, to, to be Jesus, right? to be Jesus to the poor. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.